Now, thus far, especially the last couple of chapters of Isaiah, we have seen a prophecy in which the sinfulness of the people have been described and the hope of salvation that is to come. Isaiah has pictured the spirit of the Lord coming upon the suffering servant who will set the people free from their sins by offering himself for us. And then further, he described that when the servant comes, reward will be with him in his hand. But along with that reward will also come judgment upon the enemies. And we learn from Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 63 that God's enemies are also our enemies and our enemies are also God's enemies. And God is going to judge and thus salvation would come through judgment. But how are the people to have hope? In this time when God says he's going to vindicate, as we have seen in our studies so far, these people are presently having to deal with their enemies. And God is saying, I'm going to bring judgment. Vindication is in my right hand. So stay with me and your salvation will come. But what do you do in the meantime? And I think that's where we're at with Isaiah as we continue in Isaiah 63. Remember the first six verses of Isaiah 63 graphically describe the Christ coming in, riding in on the horse. He is in splendid garments, beautiful apparel, and everybody's asking the question, now why are your clothes all red? And the answer is that he's gone about destroying the enemies. He's splattered their blood upon himself. And we see that in Revelation 19. Same imagery again as Christ comes against the enemies. So what will the people do as they wait for judgment? As they endure the oppression and suffering that they will go through? As they endure judgment? As they're going to be carried away into Babylonian captivity? What are they to do until deliverance comes? And the answer to that question is... Is going to be useful for us as well because we're going to consider that what he instructs them to do we should be doing as well as we wait for our final salvation as we wait for the Lord to return for us and explains to us how we deal with oppression and difficulties as we serve the Lord and then endure problems for righteousness sake and how we handle distress and suffering how should we go about our lives in these things and so that's what we're going to look at then in Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 64. You'll notice in verse 7 uh, of Isaiah 63, that's where we're going to begin. And let's look at the first three verses there, verses 7, 8, and 9 of Isaiah 63. I'll recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not deal falsely. And and He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. The beginning point is, here's what we should do. Number one, remember the compassion of God. Remember the mercy of God. Remember the love of God. And he says in verse 7, I will recount 
the steadfast love of the Lord. As we wait for the deliverance of God, he says, you know what I can do is a song that we even have in our books. I will count the blessings of God. I'm going to name the things that God has done. I will remember the steadfast love that God has accomplished for me and for us as a nation is what Isaiah begins with. And I think that is very important for us to do uh, because we have the tendency to forget the blessings of God. We have the tendency to forget all that God has done for us. And, And Isaiah steps back and says one of the ways to muddle through oppression and deal with suffering and deal with the righteousness who are are dealing with enemies is remember all that God has done up to this point. Notice verse 7 says he's going to speak of the middle of verse 7, the great goodness of God, the compassion of God, the abundance of his steadfast love. He looks to all these things and says, that's what I'm going to focus my attention on. I'm going to pay attention to the great goodness of God. I'm going to look at his steadfast love. I'm going to see his compassion. And that is what is going to get us through this time of difficulty as we wait for the deliverance to come. I think that's extremely important because we are certainly in a society today, and I don't think it's unusual. I think it's the way all societies have been, is that when distress, difficulty, suffering, problems come, we usually are given the directions of, well, you need to focus on yourself. You know, you're going through some hard times, you need some you time, some me time, so you worry about yourself, focus on numero uno, and take care of yourself, and do all that. And notice that God's prescription is not, now when things get tough, focus on yourself. When things get rough, I want you just to isolate yourself and kind of have a bunker mentality, get all by yourself and just kind of have some self-pity and wallow around in it for a while. And and that's going to be good for you. And that's going to be the way you'll survive. That's human wisdom. Notice what God says to do. If you want to regain your hope and maintain your spiritual vision, you don't look to self. You don't turn inward. You don't consider, oh, woe is me. Look at all the things. Look how I suffer for the name of the Lord. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. That is what carries us through. This is what will help us in times of difficulty. Look at how great God's goodness is. And I love the language that he uses of that. Like in 7, not to say the goodness that he's done to the house of Israel. The great goodness, he says. The end of verse 7, not just his steadfast love, but according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Look at the immensity of what God has done. Look at all that he has accomplished for us. This is what we see him calling us to do. And it is through difficulties that we often forget to do that. It is so easy to lose sight of all the innumerable blessings, innumerable good things that God has done in our lives, that God has delivered us through all kinds of things. And just if we come to another moment of tragedy, of difficulty, of suffering for the name of the Lord, and immediately can forget all that God has done in the past. And so Isaiah says, we're not going to do that. We're going to recount all the things that God has done. I, I submit to you that this might be a useful picture of what Jude meant when he commanded those Christians and said, I want you to keep yourself in the love of God. That's kind of a strange command if you think about that for a minute. I want you to keep yourself in the love of God. What does that exactly look like to say, I'm keeping myself in the love of God? But I think this is one of the ways we do that. 
is think about all that God has done. Don't let that slip your mind. Recount the blessings of God. Recount the love of God. Keep it at the forefront of your mind. And when you keep that at the forefront of your mind, it's easier to remain in the love of God, to proclaim His steadfast love, to not allow our faith to be shaken and to walk away from Him, but instead hunker down in God. It's when we focus on ourselves that it becomes much easier to walk away from God. We look at ourselves and go, well, why, you know, here I am all by myself and no, nobody understands. And you can imagine the usefulness as you see like throughout the scriptures of there's all been all kinds of people of God who have suffered and had distress and all kinds of difficulties for the name of the Lord and all that they've gone through. And there's a reason why God has given us a community of, of Christ followers to be joined together to lift one another up and say, yeah, I've gone through those difficulties and those turbulent things. I've had that kind of suffering. And I think that's what verse 8 gets at when he describes that this is the way his people are. Verse 8, he's, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely and he became their savior. This is how faithfulness is maintained. He says, my people are loyal. My people are faithful. They don't give up. They don't quit. They don't turn their back. They don't walk away. This is what my people will do. Consider what a contrast that is to what we've seen of Israel up to this point in the 700s who in difficulty have turned their back on God. And you say, that's not what my people will be. I will be their savior and they will stay loyal. They will stay faithful. They will give their lives to me. They will understand that I am there for them. Thus, verse 9, what a beautiful picture. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. We're going to come across some amazing lines in this text tonight. Uh, I'll submit to you this is amazing line number one. When you're distressed, God's distressed. And in your affliction, He's afflicted. And the greatest affliction that we were dealing with was our sins. And God was not pleased to sit back and go, Well, you know, it's a shame that they all keep falling into sin. I told them what they ought to do and I just don't understand why they don't do the right thing. Uh, Maybe the next batch of generation that comes along, maybe they're born, they'll do it. He's afflicted when we're afflicted. He is distressed when we're distressed. This is the whole reason He sends a Savior is because He doesn't want us to be that way. He recognizes our our difficulties with sin. He recognizes the problem. And He is distressed by that. And we have seen that in the past few chapters. Remember we we had God looking down and He said, there was no one to save them. So what does God do? Walk away? My own right arm, he said, will save. My own right arm will deliver them. I will do something about it because nobody else can. And so here is God giving us this great picture that he cares about us that much. He is greatly distressed by what we go through. And it truly shows the way that God cares about us. It is fascinating that how often God, when he wants to use a term for us addressing him. The term is not, oh great, oh powerful, oh far away, almighty God, but Father. Father. You know, he could have come up with a really, really long title of superior sovereign greatness must address me by this very long title that I deserve to be called by. Now, when you pray, I want you to pray this way. He's your father. 
and he has compassion. And he is distressed when you are distressed. And it's a beautiful image of how God comes to his people, considers us his children. And here is we see this great picture of Isaiah saying, here's what I will do. I will remember the compassion of my God. In fact, let me underline three words that you see there. So beautiful. Verse nine, the angel in his presence says he saved them. Middle of verse nine, redeemed them. And verse nine, lifted them up and carried them. Great words right there. Here's what God does. God saves, God delivers, God redeems, God carries us through. He says, this is what I'm waiting for God to do. I will remember how God saves, God redeems, God God does all of these things for us. So this is how he begins. But now watch what he does as he describes this. Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up from the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people and make for yourself a glorious name oh man unbelievable what he says right here so he says well here's what happened okay we're going to remember our compassionate loving god does that work no next line but they rebelled (laughs) we've seen that in the book of isaiah here's our problem we're a bunch of sinners we rebel here is the great compassionate god who says i will save i will deliver your distress is my distress and we go thank you i want to do what i want to do and we rebel against him and I think this certainly reflects the attitude and disposition really of all humanity is that God is pouring out his love and God is pouring out his blessings and we forget all that he has done and therefore we turn and rebel against him And I want us to see how God describes this and why sin is so terrible. This is just another facet of all the reasons that God gives why we are to avoid sin. Here's another useful image that he uses here. It says in verse 10, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. You thought about that for a minute? What an idea. What an amazing concept. That what we are doing in our lives has the ability to grieve the almighty sovereign God. That's really a mind-blowing statement. They rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. It grieved God was upsetting to him. Sin is distressing to God. It is grievous to him. And I want us to consider why that would be. To grieve over someone means you really care about them. You have a deep relationship and emotional feeling towards someone. I mean, I... Do any of you, if you, you know, especially back in the day when newspapers were relevant, you sit down at the newspaper and here's all the obituaries, right? Every day, big long list of obituaries, and all of you are crying just uncontrollably as you read that list, right? 
No. Why not? Don't know. Doesn't matter. When are you grieved? Because you know. That's when it matters. That's when it hits home. Here's God going, you're not just a number. God isn't looking at sins and going, well, there's a pile more sins, put it on the board. You know, that's just par for the course for all humanity. Grieved. Means he cares. Means it matters. Means it strikes him deeply. Sin is extremely relevant to God. And it means all the more that we are important to Him. And our sins grieve Him. And that's the picture that you are seeing here. And it's why it was commanded even in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. When we choose to not do what God said, when we are rejecting His love, rejecting His revelation, rejecting His rule, rejecting His plan for our lives, what we're doing is grieving God. And it says that's really what sin is. Sin is saying to God, I have no interest in you. I want to do what I want to do. It's the rejection of God. Every sin is a declaration by us that we will do what we want to do for that moment. We are God. He is not. I don't care what He has to say. I want to do what I want to do. Now, none of us have that much go through our mind at that moment. None of us consider for the moment that's what sin is all about. But this is the depth of sin. And in the midst of all of this, look at what it says in verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. And he begins to remember from verse 11 to verse 14 as you scan your eyes over at the Exodus, right? The right arm of Moses in verse 12, who led them through the depths in verse 13. Like the horse through the desert, he carries them through. The people rebelled. We go back and we read from Exodus to Numbers. How are the people doing? Well, they're a bunch of obedient people, right? When we read it, we feel like almost every day was they woke up and rebelled, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, next page, next chapter. Well, they're breaking God's law yet again. And here's what Isaiah is observing. They continued to rebel day after day after day. And what did God do? but continue to care for them all the way to the edge of the promised land. He didn't just say, all right, well, just leave them out there in the wilderness. Let them die of thirst. No more manna for you today. We just shut the skies off. I mean, think about that for a minute. They're only eating and drinking in the middle of a desert because God's providing it every day. And God continued to do that. And that's what he's recalling right here. Even in the face of their rebellion, here is God remembering Moses and remembering his people, the compassion and love that he has for them. And what we have a wonderful picture of is how God is glorified by his faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness. Now, that makes sense. What an idea. God shows himself to be all the more glorious because he keeps staying faithful to his word, even though everybody else keeps breaking the covenant and rebel again and again and again and again. I mean, they shouldn't have made it out of Egypt. (laughs) We read that. I mean, we get to the water and they're already yelling at Moses and saying, we've got this all wrong. Let's go back. Surrender now before it's too late. And yet God delivers. 
again and again and again for 40 years. He delivers his people every single day, provides for them, cares for them. In fact, you'll notice in verse 14, it says, until it came to the point the spirit of the Lord did give them rest. They entered into that promised land. God took them in. God allowed them to go, though they certainly did not deserve that. We are called to be amazed by God's steadfast love. We are called to be amazed again and again about His compassion and His love for us, which is to give us faith and to give us the strength we need through the times of difficulty. It is when we are under persecution and suffering for the name of the Lord and going through distress that we look to the compassion that God has had for us and how He has delivered, not only historically and also in our own lives, and recognize this is what keeps me strong. I believe this is exactly what Job is talking about. And Hey, naked I came into this world, naked I go. I, I, he's taken care of me from start to finish. I will rely upon the Lord. I will bless the name of the Lord. Here's Isaiah doing the same thing as he continues to be amazed by God, even in the face of failure. Which now leads to the second picture that Isaiah offers up now. Notice verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, are, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did all awesome things that we did not look for. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. Second thing Isaiah does. Pray. Number one, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord in the face of distress and difficulty. Number two, I will pray to the God of mercy. How easy it is for prayer to be forgotten in the time of difficulty and distress. I don't know what it is about that. I think it goes back to point one. We become insular and we turn in on ourselves and we start worrying about ourselves and I can't worry about anybody else. I got my own problems. And we forget that we need to go to God. In fact, prayer needs to become the new natural automatic response. Anything that is going on, whether good or bad, whether great times or distress or persecution, or difficulty or hurting or suffering. This is what we must do. And 
notice how Isaiah calls down on God from verse 15. Look down from heaven and see. He's calling upon God. See what is going on with us. Notice your nation. Notice your people. Which then leads him to say, put your zeal and your might on display. As he describes God, he says in verse 15, where is your zeal? Where is your might? I want to see it. I want you to do something magnificent. I want you to act. And then after he does that, he offers up a confession of their sins. You see it there in verse 16. You are our father, though Abraham does not know us. You get an idea what that just meant? (laughs) You're our father, even though we are so sinful, Abraham wouldn't even recognize us as a nation. He does it again in the next line. And Israel does not acknowledge us. We don't even look like the people of God anymore. We are so sinful, but he makes a plea on the basis of God, you're our father. And even disobedient children, as disobedient as that they may be, when they make an impassioned plea to the father, the father will listen to that. What an interesting angle Isaiah takes. He says, but you are our father. Abraham doesn't know us. Israel wouldn't acknowledge us. People of God couldn't recognize us. But he says it again in verse 16. You, O Lord, are our father. The ability to recognize our sinfulness before God and to express it to him. Lord, I've been praying to you as I I should have. I have not done it. Lord, I have not been recognizing the weight of my sin, how I grieve you by my rebellion to you, the confession of sin of I'm not what I know you want me to be. Listen how Isaiah does that. Lord, I, I want to see your action. I want to see your intervention, but I know our condition. I know what we've done. I know our sinfulness that Abraham would not even know who we are if he came along and saw us. He'd think we're just another nation out there like everybody else. But you're our Father. And I know you've made great and precious promises, Lord, that you'll listen to us. And so he admits and confesses their sins before him. And then notice verse 17, because what he says in verse 17 perhaps might be shocking to you. Did you see what he says? Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? That sounds interesting. Wait a minute. Just a minute ago, you said you're the problem. Look at all my sins. We're sinful. We're not doing what's right. He said that again and again and again. Remember back in chapter 59? We're full of sins. No one's righteous. Nobody does good. We're all a mess. He said that so many times. And now he says, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Interesting. I think this teaches us something extremely powerful about the way God operates. It's something that appears a few times in the New Testament, but really I think you get a great picture of it here. I think the first thing that becomes obvious, and you would think this is overly obvious, but I think it needs to be contemplated for a moment, is to recognize that disobedience never brings us closer to God. I mean, he's, he's saying that here. We're so far from you. We're separated from you. And, and Isaiah knows why. He just said so in the previous verse. We're unrecognizable. We're full of sins. We're a perverse people. We aren't doing what's right. 
And it's just a reminder to us, friends. Continuing your sinful ways is not helping you in your walk with God. That's not getting you any closer. That's not making your heart any softer. That's not making things any better. You have a tendency to do that. Difficult times come. Well, I better just do whatever I think is best. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's not working. And then notice again, but he puts this on God. And I think it's interesting how he words that. Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we do not fear you? Notice he says in verse 17, return for the sake of your servants. Return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. Here's the picture that I think that we're getting. As our hearts move further and further away from God in our disobedience, God doesn't ever stop us in that. You know, that's something that we've seen over and over again. God does not ever come in and go, you know what? Don't do that sin today. (laughs) You see, like in Romans 1, he's going to let them go. If you want to plunge yourself into sin, you are allowed to do that. He's not going to stop you. But recognize the effect of what happens. We've seen this again and again. We had a whole lesson on it in Isaiah. What was the title of it? Sin separates, right? We saw that. Sin separates. Sin separates. This is what sin does. This is what sin accomplishes. But here's something useful that Isaiah is observing about that. Sin separates. He is a holy God and it separates us from him. But there's a purpose to that. The separation is so that we will want to come back to him and be back in fellowship with him. He's not going to stay in relationship with us and go, well, that's okay. That's fine. You just keep going on your own. No, there's got to be a chasm so that we will recognize we're doing something wrong. And the severing of the relationship will wake us up. To go, you know what? I need to get back with God. Isn't it interesting? That's exactly how God operated with the New Testament church and said the exact same thing. Matthew 18. Someone is sinning and is unrepented after one person, after a couple of people, and before the whole church. What do you do? Withdraw. Punish them, right? No. Why? So they feel the weight of their sin by the separation desire to come back. That's what God is desiring. That's what God is wanting. You see that in 1 Corinthians 5, the same thing is he tries to say about this one who is in sin. This is to bring them back. Sin separates and it's supposed to cause within us a desire to come back. But guess what happens as well? God's intent is that we will come back. But Isaiah is observing what it's doing to the people. Are they all coming back? He says, no. He says, our hearts are getting harder. The rebellion is increasing. And often that's another reaction that people have is that sin separates. And what do people do? Go further and further away from God. We saw that with Pharaoh. We've talked about that a few times about the concept of hardening the hearts. We talked about that in Romans 9, how God hardens hearts. See the same imagery here, same picture there. You have a choice. Will you come back to God or will you go further and further away from God? 
Isaiah is making a confession here. This is not the blame game to God of why are you making us be sinful? The previous verse, he's confessing we're sinful. Abraham wouldn't even know us if he came along. The problem is we've separated ourselves because of sin and we are not responding properly. It's causing us to go further and further away from God. I think Revelation is one great place where you see that specifically. Revelation 16, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Earlier we studied Revelation, here's God trying to bring the people back and there are partial judgments that are happening. Read these fractions. You know, partial judgment, a third of the sea and a third of the land and a third of the sky. Partial judgments. And all the people go, wow, God's judging. We should really pay attention. Turn back to God, right? No, here's what they did. They cursed God and did not repent. God does these things to call people back to Him. But often people take these things and go further and further away from God. To put it in a, in a simple way, God's actions can cause people to move further from God. That's not His intention. But it happens a lot. I, we could do this all day. I thought about it. We could have a whole separate sermon on this. I won't. But just think of a couple of examples. How about Luke 15? Great little parable right there. Lost son, right? He's not deserving of the Father's mercy, any goodness whatsoever, right? The son says, you know what? Maybe I'll just be a servant. He comes back. Father says, you get all full rights and privileges. You're a son. Slaves the fat calf, the whole thing. What's those actions of the father cause to the older brother? To love God more because he's so compassionate? To drives him further away. The actions of God cause people to turn away. That's not his intent. But some people don't like how God operates. How about the book of Jonah? There's a plain one. Why does Jonah go the other way? Because he knew that God was a compassionate God and would forgive all the people of Nineveh, and he was really upset about that. That's what he says. Now, we read that and go, Jonah, you're crazy. But that's how God operates. Is God is acting in the world. And we're either to allow those things to draw us back to Him, or it causes us to go further away. And what Isaiah is saying is, this separation should should have brought us back to you, but it hasn't done it. We've rebelled. We've sinned. And so what he's doing now from the end of chapter 63 to the beginning of chapter 64 is he is praying that God will do something. I need you to do something. Our separation has caused this this to be darkened hearts. We've sinned and our separation from you has not caused us to come back to you. So, Lord, we are asking you to intervene into our darkened hearts. That's what I just love the imagery there. Verse one. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. We're sinful. We're not coming back. We aren't turning to you like we ought. So, Lord, would you do something? Enter into the world like you did at Sinai. And I think that's the the idea there is the mountains quake in your presence. Verse three, you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. We need you to intervene. We need you to do something. 
Isaiah's not blaming God. Isaiah's saying, we are so callous, so rebellious, so dark, we need you to intervene. Because we're not coming back. The people are too sinful. They're not responding to the actions of God as He calls for them to return. And so He says to them, will you do something amazing, Lord, so that people will realize there is not a God like you? You might recognize verse 4. The Apostle Paul used that when he wrote to the Corinthians to argue that our wisdom cannot begin to comprehend God. And our wisdom is shamed by God. And it is only that God reveals Himself through His Spirit to the apostles, as he argues in that chapter, that we can begin to comprehend who God is. And he's using that right here in Isaiah 64. Do something so amazing that no one has ever seen, that no one has ever heard. We need you to intervene. We need you to do something amazing. Break into the universe. Put us to shame so that we can understand how great you are. Paul uses that in such an amazing way because that's exactly what God did. It's exactly what God would do. Let's talk about that for a minute. Notice verses 5 through 12 as he moves into the final part of this this prayer. And he's going to describe for us how we can now draw closer to God. The the end of verse 5 asks a very important question. End of verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Anybody ever feel that way? That's a great line right there. We've been in our sins a long time. And we know you're angry with our sins. Shall we be saved? Is that even possible? He asked the question. He's just delineated. Here's our sinful ways. Here's all that we've done that's wrong. But he's going to observe a couple of things that pictures how we are able to be with our God, though we are sinful. Verse 5. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in their ways. This has been a, a constant refrain, something that we've really stressed in the Wednesday night study. A great picture here of God meets those who are not just simply doing righteous things, but joyfully work righteousness. And I love the language that he uses. They remember the Lord as they live their lives. Notice how he says that in verse 5. Those who remember you in their ways. They remember God in the things that they do. This is what they what God wants of us. God wants us to joyfully serve Him, to remember Him. That as we live our lives, that God is not an afterthought, but it becomes our joy to do righteous things. It becomes a transformation because God will break into this universe, break into these darkened hearts, and show us why it is better for us to follow Him and serve Him. And he says, here's what I want from you. Joyfully live your life for me. Joyfully remember me tomorrow when you wake up and you begin to do your day-to-day business. And you start living your morning out and you get ready for work and you're going down the road and you're living on the job. Remember me in your ways. God says, those are the ones that I meet. Because Isaiah asked, can we be saved? God says, yeah. 
Absolutely. Remember, I'm the God of mercy. You rebelled and I saved you anyway. And I'll bring in those who joyfully remember me, who joyfully work righteousness, who show a love for the Lord above all other things. This is how God has shown us his steadfast love. And this is to break through to our broken, darkened, corrupt hearts. Isaiah said, Lord, we need you to break through heaven, tear the sky open and come down and surprise us as we've never seen before, as we've never looked at it before and make the mountains quake is what he asked. God answered that. He didn't do it by shaking Mount Sinai. He broke through our blind, dark, and corrupt hearts by coming to earth himself. That's what he did. Rather than coming in just merely a presence with the mountains shaking and smoking with lightning and thunder, God became man and walked among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son, sent from the Father full of grace and truth. This is what's supposed to change us. Isaiah has said it again and again and again. Look to Jesus and that will change your life. That will give you the faith you need. That will give you the strength to stand. Look to Jesus and your prayer life will go up. Look to Jesus and you'll recount more of your blessings. Look to Jesus and you'll be stronger as you go through distress. Look to Jesus. You'll remember the compassion of God. Look to Jesus and you will see the saving and redeeming nature of God. Look to Jesus again and again and again for He has done exactly what we needed. For we were darkened in our hearts. We were darkened in our minds. And God has entered into the universe and done something that nobody could have ever imagined. And that's what I love how Isaiah has, has asked that. That he God would do something. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for. Who was looking for God to start walking around on the earth? <laughs> Amazing things that God has done. To bring about our salvation and our redemption. Look at verse 6. The second characteristic of those who will meet God and receive compassion and mercy. Verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. Number two, a refrain that happens over and over again in Isaiah, a refrain that Jesus teaches over and over again. Recognize our sinfulness to mourn over our spiritual condition. Please consider the weight of verse six. Isaiah says, I can add up all my righteous deeds. I'll write up all my righteous acts. And here's what they are to you, God. Abominable, filthy rags. They're nothing. What are we going to stand on before God? Well, I went to church every Sunday. I'm going to get the compassion of God, right? We don't have that. There's nothing we can stand on to go, well, here it is. Here's all my righteous acts that are going to add up to something. No. 
what God is always calling us to recognize is our sinfulness. To go before God again and again and, and proclaim our sinfulness, our sinfulness, our sinfulness. This is what God wants. Have we missed that parable where here is the Pharisee on the street corner with his eyes to heaven praying about how good he is and he's grateful to not be like that tax collector over there. There are no righteous seeds to stand on. Who does God praise in the story? The tax collector who will not lift up his eyes but keeps his head down, beats his breast and just says, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is what God wants. Not our righteous deeds. As if we're going to mount up enough good deeds before God that's going to make it all okay for what we've done. He wants broken, contrite hearts that come back to Him again and again that simply say, I know that my deeds are not enough and I cannot do enough and that's why I need Your mercy and that's why I need Your grace and that's why I need Your compassion. Is this not why David was a man after God's own heart who could step back and recognize sacrifices you do not desire? David could have ordered for all the animals in Judah to be killed. Go for it. Take them all out. David goes, that's not going to matter. He could have done all the acts of worship he could possibly have thought of as king over Israel. But a broken and contrite heart, that's what you want. David understood it. Isaiah understands it. And if we want to meet the God of mercy, we must understand it. It is coming to God in mercy and saying, I am a sinner. Be merciful to me. Number three, and finally, let us recognize our position. Verse eight. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. (laughs) I feel like as I read that, that I should say that as soon as I get up in the morning. Right? Lord, you're our father. You're in charge. I'm just the child. We are the clay. You're the potter. And we're the work of your hand. What a picture is that God wants us to come to him and just say, all right. I'm not in charge. It's not about me. You're the Father, and I will not resist your transformation of me into the image that you desire. We must admit, say, believe God is our Father, God is our Master, God is the Potter. Lord, mold us as you desire to mold us. God is the one that is in charge. And we know that God will act because of his own name and his own steadfast love. That's what Isaiah keeps relying upon again and again and again. In all of our sins, it is amazing to me And I hope the lesson impresses upon you the same amazing concept. That God is so amazingly compassionate. 
that he continues to take us back and implores us to come to him, come to him, come to him. Isaiah says, we're so bad, Abraham wouldn't even know us. But you're our father. Will you take us back? And God does. With mercy, with compassion, he will save, he will redeem, he will restore, he will act, he will do it. He's done it again and again and again. I'll just leave you with this passage. The writer of Hebrews, I think, kind of sums it up. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. This is what Isaiah is saying. As we wait for our deliverance, let's hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God does is not that He does not understand what we've done. That's what makes Jesus the great high priest for us. He was tempted. He was tried. He knows. He's experienced it. He's endured it. So what shall we do? Let us then with confidence. Let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us go to the throne of God. Go in prayer. Go in faith. Go in confession of sin. Go confessing all that you've done. And we can do it confidently. And he says you will find grace and you will find mercy in your time of help. Isaiah is amazing. Well, you pull your song books out, listening invitation song. We invite you to come to our amazing God who has promised that He will save you from your sins, that He is so compassionate and so loving that though we rebel, He carries us on, allows us to take another breath, longing for us to come back to Him. The separation that exists because of sin, God is calling for you to come back, not to continue in your sinful ways, not to go further away from Him, but to recognize you're at a loss without your Father. He's longing for you to return to Him. He is long-suffering. And he is patient. And he desires all to repent. Will you come to him tonight? Will you turn away from your sins and be immersed in water to have your sins washed away and begin your walk with him? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?